We have about two more weeks before the next semester begins, and Brother Kemp will be taking over this class. Um, So I need to get through a bunch of chapters in the next two weeks. So um, what we're going to do is we're going to begin just a brief overview of each chapter and look at um, significant verses in that, speak a little bit about that. When we get to the 53rd chapter, which is the chapter uh, concerning uh, the Messiah, the suffering Messiah, we probably will spend, I'm guessing I'm probably going to spend the last session uh, on that. So we'll try to get through as much as, as we can today. So if you'd open your Bibles to the 45th chapter of the book of Isaiah, this is a chapter that is without parallel in all of Scripture. Nowhere else in God's writing does he directly address a heathen king. Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh, Abimelech, some others were spoken to in dreams. Nebuchadnezzar was even promised divine aid in Ezekiel 30. But no heathen monarch was ever addressed personally by God, much less was he called his anointed and spoken of by his name. There are three reasons that he is mentioned or that he is spoken to in this way, that this special favor is given to him. The first reason is that he might acknowledge that God or Jehovah is the true God. Notice, if you will, throughout the chapter that God refers to himself as there is no God beside me. Though you have not known me, I am the Lord and there is no other. And that Israel, secondly, might benefit and advantage and and take advantage of his great mercy in letting the people of Israel, the children of Israel, go from captivity from the Babylonians. Thirdly, the attention of the whole world would be attracted to this and the unity of God would would be made manifest far and wide. And we find that in verses 3 through 6. I'm particularly interested in this chapter in verse 9. In verse 8, He says, rain down you heavens from above and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open. Let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who formed it, what are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, He has no hands. Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, what have you brought forth? And so as we look at these chapters concerning Babylonian captivity and Babylonian uh, conquering and being overcome by Cyrus, uh, in chapters 41 through 48 is is the area where this takes place. Chapter 45 is unique in its address from God to this heathen king. You will notice historically when Babylon was overthrown, and this goes to the next chapter especially, the next two chapters, 
Um, when Babylon was conquered by Cyrus and the Medo-Persian Empire, the, the idol worship in Babylon ceased as Cyrus introduced a monotheistic religion to this part of the world, and it's called Zoroastrianism. And it was, uh, it was propagated by a man named Zoroaster in the 6th century B.C. And so Zoroasterism became the predominant religion of the, uh, of the Persians. And it was parallel to the religion of the Hebrews in that it was a monotheistic religion, but yet it was still uh, not necessarily an idol-based religion, but it did not worship the true God. And so as we move to chapter 46, what we see is we see this fall of the gods of Babylon, and this is a direct consequence, again, of Cyrus's conquest. Uh, Babylonian idolatry in its grandest forms ended with Cyrus's conquest. There were still some who held on to the old beliefs, uh, but they became a a small fragment of the population. But for the monotheistic Persians, the polytheistic and grossly idolatrous Babylonians uh, went the way of uh, all of these idolatrous uh, countries. And we see in in the 46th chapter that while the idols are gone, um, there there is still God speaking to the idols as he has in, uh, as in chapters past. Um, he talks about the fact that they can do nothing. They simply stand there. Um, they're carved, and uh, they, don't, they don't do anything. They're not capable of doing anything. And so this idolatrous worship uh, gives way to the monotheistic worship of, uh, of the Persians. And really, in, uh, in that chapter, uh, there really are no other than, other than verse 11 of chapter 46 where it says, Calling a bird of prey from the east, again alluding to Cyrus, the man who executes my counsel from a far country, indeed I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near, it shall, be, it shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. And so chapter 46 concerns the, uh, well, chapter 46 concerns the idolatrous gods of Babylon and their fall at the hands of Cyrus. Uh, Chapter 47 then moves on to talk about how Babylon will be humiliated in the face of uh, of the the coming uh, Persian invasion. And this is really this is really considered by most uh, by most scholars a song of triumph over the fall of Babylon. And if you look at the if you look at the uh, the chapter, it's divided into four stanzas. The first four verses are the first stanza. Chapter uh, ver- uh, verses five through seven are the second stanza. The third stanza is verses eight through eleven, and the fourth of the four is cha- is uh, verses twelve through fifteen. And of those, I would call your attention uh, to the fact that the speaker here uh, is either Jehovah, as alluded to in verse 3, or it's a chorus of celestial beings. And this is what scholars say, bent on expressing their sympathy uh, with Israel 
in the face of this humiliation of, uh, of, the, Babylon, of the Babylonians. And so if you would uh, point your attention especially to verses 6 here, uh, where God says, I was angry with my people. I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. You showed them no mercy, speaking to the, Babylonian, uh, speaking to the Babylonians, uh, that God was angry with his people, uh, profaned my inheritance. I have given them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the elderly, you laid your yoke very heavily. And then he, he calls to them the fact that they would say that they are a lady forever. So that you did not take these things to heart. No, remember the latter end of these things. Again, verses 8, 9, and 10 are quite telling uh, for this humiliation of Babylon. Therefore, hear this now. You who are given to pleasure, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one else beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. But these two, thing, these two things shall come to pass to you in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon you in their fullness because, you, because of the multitude of your sorceries for the great abundance of your enhancements, enchantments. For you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one else beside me. Therefore, evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises, and trouble shall fall upon you. You will not be able to put it off, and desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. And so the humiliation of, of Babylon in, these, in, these, in this song of four stanzas uh, uh, is the, the sum total of, of chapter 47. And as we move to chapter 48... We then see a call to the people, a call to the house of Israel. Uh, this present chapter, this chapter 48, uh, is the second portion of this. Is a, this is a, it's a long address by God to his people. Um, partly it is a complaint of the people, of, to the people, partly a combined uh, premise and exhortation. And it, it too is divided into three sections, uh, verses 1 through 11 constitute the first address. And notice that each one of these um, comes with the call to pay attention or to listen or to hear this, listen to me or to hear this. And so in the first of the three, he says, hear this, O house of Judah, in verse 1. In verse 12, he says, listen to me, O Jacob. And then in verse 16, finally, he says, Come near to me and hear this. Again, verses that are important in this chapter to point out are verses 10 and 11, where he says in the first, uh, in, in the first speech to them, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned, and I will not give my glory to another? And then in the second speech, verses 12 and 13, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, and I am also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. And finally, in the last section, verses 16 through 22, where he says, Come near to me and hear this. 
verses 16, 17, and 18, where he says, Come near to me, hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. And now the Lord God and his Spirit have sent me. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way that you should go. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. And so in this entreaty from God to the children of Israel, he says three times, pay attention, listen to me, hear what I have to say. Chapter 49 is a discussion of the Messiah's mission. And this is the Messianic mission in verses 1 through 12, where God speaks of what will be and what, will, what, will, what is to come. And, of course, the people are hearing this and they're not understanding. And this becomes more of a theme as we move toward the 53rd chapter. The last portion of the chapter, the Messiah's mission, verse, verses 1 through 12, particularly verse 6 in that one, indeed he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to rise up, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so here the writer, uh, speaking by way of that predictive prophecy, understand or understanding that the coming one will have a message that is not only for the Jews, but we all, he will also be a light unto the Gentiles that you should see my salvation or should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Finally, in this chapter, verses 13 through 26, talk about the restoration, uh, the restoration of Israel post-captivity. And as we see uh, in verses 14 through 17, uh, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hand. This is God speaking. That he, has, that he has inscribed them on the palms of his hands, and your walls are continually before me. Lift up your eyes, verse 18. Lift up your eyes and look around and see. All those gather together and come to you. And as I live, says the Lord, you shall surely clothe yourselves with them all as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. And so here God is giving them consolation and showing them that the mission, that the Messiah's mission in the first 12 verses correlates well with that restoration of Egypt and the salvation that Messiah is to bring to him or to them, to the world, even the Gentiles. So chapter 50, this chapter seems to be made up of short fragments. This one uh, has confounded scholars throughout the years. Um, it's a collection of, of Isaiah's writings that they regarded as too precious to be lost, but it does not fall uh, under any group of other writings that Isaiah had, has made either prior to this or after this that seem to fit anywhere. What you'll see in his, his verses 1 through 3, 1, 2, and 3, they're a rebuke to the exiles for deeming themselves wholly rejected and not rising to the occasion that deliverance is now at hand. And so he says, Thus saith the Lord, where is the certificate of your mother's divorce? Whom have I put away? And we understand that the children of Israel um, had very strict guidelines on uh, putting away someone uh, for divorce. 
And so he's using this example uh, on account of their backsliding. God has had to put away Israel. He put them away. Uh, Judah's sister, he had given them, he had given her a bill of divorce. You look at Isaiah 3 verse 8. Um, but he had not repudiated Judah and her children uh, were not completely cast off. They would always be able to return to him. And so as he writes this, why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that I cannot redeem or that I have no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I can dry up the sea. I can make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there is no water. They die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. Sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak. A word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame or from spitting. And so what we see here in verses 4 through 9 is a messianic prophecy. This is concerning Christ. This is Christ speaking. The Lord God had given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak. A word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. And so, speaking of Christ in verse 6, I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame or from spitting. And we know that... Uh, we know that our Lord suffered all these things at the hands of the, of the Romans. For the Lord God will help me, verse 7. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. And so, as we look at these verses that talk about the servant of the Lord, the, fir- the first three verses then speak to uh, that rebuke of God, that the people should rise up, that they are being delivered, and so they should, uh, they should rise up and, and ready themselves for their deliverance. And then he talks about the coming Messiah and how the Messiah will, uh, will be treated, how he will act. Uh, and then verses 10 through 11 are important. Uh, who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon God. Look, all of you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourself with sparks. Walk in the light of your fire and the sparks you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. And talking about the weakness uh, of the people at this point in time. Uh, Chapter 51. This is divided up into, again, uh, three sections. Uh, God appears to, or the prophet uh, appears to be the speaker uh, in this instance. And he's talking about the, the address. He's addressing the faithful remnant of Israel Uh, suggesting the comfort that the Lord brings from Zion. Notice in each one of these, in verses 1 to 3, in verses 4 to 6, and then in verses 7 through 23, he begins each of these by saying, listen to me, listen to me. Uh, In verses 1 through 3, listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you, for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. 
For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all the waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. And then in verses 4 through 6, listen to me again, he says, and give ear to me. Uh, with special emphasis on verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath. For the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment. And those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will not be abolished. And then in verses 7 through 23, listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. So again, he's awakening the sleeping remnant. He's awakening the remnant of Israel uh, that have been true to God. And really in verses 9 and 23 of this uh, are some, uh, some important points. 9 says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days. In the generations of old, are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? So let's stop there for just a second. What's he talking about here when he says, you are not, you're not the arm, are you not the arm, are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart? Well, if you look in Psalm 87 verse 4 and in Psalm 89 verse 10, Rahab uh, is compared to Egypt. And so in this case, we're not talking about Rahab from the, uh, the fall of Jericho, but we're talking about Rahab being compared to uh, Egypt. And so here, when he talks about uh, cutting the arm of Rahab apart and wounded the serpent, this is the, this is the part where they're being, led from, they're being led out of captivity. And he notes um, three times in one of these chapters, in several of these chapters, he notes three times that they've been held captive, yet they're free. There's the Egyptian captivity, where they were freed by God. There's the Assyrian captivity, where they were freed uh, eventually by, uh, by God. And then now the, the coming freedom that will come at the hands of Cyrus from the Babylonians. And so again, verse 23, um, uh, uh, well, in verse 15 of that chapter, verse 50, of chapter 51, But I am the Lord your God who divided the sea, whose, roar, whose waves roared, the Lord of hosts is his name, and we're, he's alluding to, obviously, the, the, uh, the Red Sea. And I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundation of the earth, and say to Zion, you are my people. And then verse 23, uh, he talks about, uh, but, I will put in, but I will put it into the hand of those who afflict you, in this case the Babylonians, who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you. And you have laid your body on the ground, like the ground, and as the street for those who will walk over you. So, uh, three stanzas also in this one, each of them beginning with the words, uh, hearken unto me, attend to me. Uh, and here, uh, Isaiah is apparently the speaker speaking of, of what God has, what God has put in his mouth to say to the people. Uh, chapter 52 has the coming salvation. And here again, uh, the writer alludes to these three captivities. Um, it's a further address to the, to the, to the prophet of Jerusalem. Uh, Zion is exhorted to rise up and cast off the dust, throw off their bonds, assert their freedom, uh, the freedom which is coming to them at the, at the hands of Cyrus uh, from the Babylonians. He says, shake yourself from the dust, arise, sit down, O Jerusalem, loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing, 
and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus saith the Lord God, verse 4, My people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. And that's the first time that they were saved from or they were delivered from captivity. And the Assyrians oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, what have I, what have I here, says the Lord? Uh, that my people are taken away for nothing. Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord. And my name is blasphemed continually every day. So what we see in, in uh, the, opening, the opening verses here, down through verse, uh, verse 1 through 6, is basically God helps, them who helps, them, God helps those who help themselves. And what he's talking about is he's talking about, yes, you've been oppressed. I've delivered you. Rise up. Uh, and there is one... Uh, in verses 13 through 15, that has uh, the, probably the most import for the coming chapter uh, in chapter 53. Uh, and we often read chapter 53, uh, which, is, uh, which, is the, uh, which is probably the, the I, don't, I guess it's probably the most quoted or the most read uh, book in all of, uh, of uh, chapter in all of Isaiah. Uh, but it would do us well to begin any of those with chapter 52, verse 13. And that is where uh, it talks about uh, God, or God's son or the Messiah, uh, his servant, uh, being uh, tortured and uh, uh, prior to all of this that happens in verse 50, 50, or chapter 53. So uh, 52, 13 says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many of you were astonished, see, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. And then, so shall he, uh, in verse 15, uh, the Septuagint, the original version of this, the word sprinkle is not in there. So the original version, the original translation says, so shall many nations marvel at him. Kings shall shut their mouths at him for what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. And so if you look at verse 14 in particular, it appears to me and to many who read this that this is a vision of Isaiah sitting at the foot of the cross. And as you read this, Isaiah sees Jesus, and he sees him hanging there, he sees him having been, having been beat, having been buffeted, having been bruised, having been marred. In his words, so his visage was marred more than any man. He was slapped. He was bruised. He was smitten. He was scourged. He was crucified. And Isaiah, sitting at the foot of the cross, sees our Savior bruised, gory, his frame and his features distorted in agony, and his form more than the sons of man. His visage marred more than any man, and his form marred more than the sons of man. And so it's important, I think, that, that we look at this introductory portion, uh, you know, where Jesus has been, where Jesus is pierced for our transgressions. And that by its very nature, then, those last three verses lead us to the 53rd chapter, which is where we will spend the majority of our, the remainder of our time today. This is called uh, the great prophecy of the suffering of Christ and his later exaltation. Um, Polycarp, in his writings, and Polycarp, if you don't know who he was, he was one of the early first century church fathers. 
Uh, he wrote in the he wrote in the, the latter days uh, following the persecution in 96 A.D. following Domitian's reign as uh, Caesar. Um, Polycarp was burned at the he was burned at the stake. And uh, if you don't know the story of Polycarp, it's well worth your time to read that. Um, he calls this chapter the golden passional of the Old Testament evangelist. Um, it is the centerpiece of this wonderful book of consul or this wonderful section of consultation, which is chapters 40 through 66, this third section of the book of Isaiah. It is the center uh, of this of this wonderful section, and it is the deepest and most lofty, uh, lofty as other scholars have said. Um, here, one scholar said, we seem to enter the holy of holies of Old Testament prophecy, the sacred chamber wherein are pictured and foretold the sufferings of Christ and the glory which shall follow. And so, as we begin to look at this, we begin to break apart in, into the various verses, uh, you know, starting in verse 1. Who hath believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah realized when he said this, he was saying this to a, a largely a group of unbelievers, people who, who could not conceptualize or could not understand, therefore did not believe that Messiah was coming. Uh, they simply thought that that was something that they were being told to give them courage, to, to help them to rise up and get out of captivity, to come back and rebuild the temple, to come back and re, to rebuild the city. But for the most part, Isaiah asked this question uh, to a group of unbelievers, um, that so marvelous a prophecy that someone would eventually come and suffer and save all of their lives and, in retrospect, all of our lives, um, who would believe that report? To whom, of the, who, to whom of the, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before them as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. And so this, this business about a, a, a tender plant, um, I don't know how many of you have traveled through the desert, but when I lived in Peru, there were buses that ran through the Atacama Desert. And at all the bus stops, there would be areas where the air conditioning or the fans and the motor and everything, which would leak water, would leak water onto the side of the road. And that would be where you would find the green grass that would grow. So in a desert where, in a desert which is drier than or more arid than Egypt, um, it, even in this most arid of deserts, alongside the roads where the water would fall, plants would spring up, and these would be very tender plants. They they would be easily they could be easily destroyed, but they had very very deep roots. And so what what he's talking about here, he's growing up as a tender plant, growing, and and Jesus is growing up as a tender plant from a felled tree. If you think about that, and the felled tree was the was was David, uh, David in his 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 empire, David in his reign, um, from the Davidic period, uh, David's David caused the collapse of of this people, and and Jesus has grown up from this from this felled tree, and he grows up as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. Again, a root out of dry ground, something that is growing in a dry ground will have very very deep roots. Um, he has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Now, many scholars look at this as, as not as not he was he was not an attractive man. There was not anything physically that would draw you to him. Um, it was the kind of thing where uh, you know he had there, there was no pomp, there was no splendor. He did not come riding on a, a white stallion to deliver the people from the, de- the dreaded Romans. Uh, he came riding on the back of a mule, and there was nothing. There was nothing that would draw your eye to him to say 
This is someone special. This is someone who's, who's very attractive, who has this power. But you have to know in Jesus' face, there was this face of grace. He had a face of great majesty. But it was not, he was not a handsome, he was not a desirable man. He was, he was simply a man who brought salvation to all, all of us. He didn't stand out in the crowd. He, he was someone, if you saw him in a group of people, he wouldn't stand out. But he had that face. He had that face of winning grace and quiet majesty. He is despised and rejected of men, not only then but now. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Probably some of the more profound words spoken of Christ. He was a man of sorrow. He sorrowed that the people did not believe that he was bringing the kingdom. The, the people sorrowed or that he sorrowed that people would not believe him. In fact, in John we're told uh, that many of his disciples, the, the small group of disciples that he had, uh, many of them went away. And you remember in, in, uh, in the book of John, you know, he asked them, you know, will you also not go away? You know, will you not also leave? Will you not also abandon me? Um, he was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. So he was a man of sorrow. He was acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Why would we hide our faces from Jesus? Why would we hide our faces from the Savior? Our shame and our, and our sin covers us. He was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs. He bore those griefs on the cross. He carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And so as we look at Christ, we see that he was a man who suffered. Imagine his suffering at the hands of men. Imagine what he went through. He went through that for each of us. He went through that for me and for you. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And so we know that he was wounded for our transgressions. Everything that he did... Everything that he took on from the garden to the cross to his death. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was wounded by the crown of thorns that was placed upon his head. He was wounded by the nails that pierced his hands and his feet. And he was wounded by the spear of the soldier. The wounds inflicted by the nails caused his death. But no stronger expression could be found in the Hebrew language to denote the severity of his suffering, suffering unto death. And the chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his death, we have peace. We're drawn closer to God. We're returned and we're redeemed to God. And by his stripes, we are healed. He was beaten. The blows that afflicted him by the hand of the Romans, Matthew 26 and 27. Being smote by the reed, Matthew 27, verse 30. And by the scourging, Matthew 27, verse 26, that he endured. Those things would leave those marks, those stripes. 
that would heal us. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the ways thereof are the ways of death. We've each gone our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yes, he he hung on that cross for all of us. Collectively, individually, the whole world has sinned. There is none good. No, not one. Psalm 14.3. All have quitted the way of the Lord, Isaiah 40 and 3, to walk in their own ways, Isaiah 66 and verse 3. Jesus even asked when he prayed to the Father to let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not as I will, but as you will, Father, Matthew 26, verse 39. The Father sent the Son to be the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 4 and 10. And Paul tells us that God made him to be sin who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. The redemption, the iniquity of us all, that redemption that Christ offered on the cross is as universal as the sin that besets us. And Christ on the cross made that full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. The Jews would easily understand being oppressed and afflicted from the days of the Egyptians to the house of the Assyrians to the Babylonians. They were oppressed, and they were afflicted. He was oppressed, but he, but he abased himself and opened not his mouth. The Jesus was silent before his judges, Matthew 26 and 22, when he could have so easily vindicated himself from every charge was that self-abasement. And he opened not his mouth. His silence, his passivity, as opposed to those who were striking him and taunting him, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And you know Isaiah probably thought about the days when sacrifice was offered, when that pastoral lamb or that sacrificial lamb led dumb to the slaughter, silent before its killers, slain there. And Isaiah had to think of that touching sight. It was probably the use of that same imagery from Isaiah that caused the immerser to say, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John 1 verse 29. As a sheep before his shears is silent, and so he opened not his mouth. Again, a reflex image of a sheep, uh, but somewhat weaker than the one that he mentions first as being led to the slaughter. He was taken from prison and from judgment, verse 8. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, and for the transgressions of my people he was taken. His origin, his earthly life, his short ministry upon this earth. Yes, he was taken from prison and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? He was cut off. His life was very short. But no man's life had more import. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. For they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich in his death. It was a Roman custom that every person who was crucified was buried with their cross near the site of 
the place of the skull, Golgotha. That did not happen to Jesus because Joseph of Arimathea intervened and asked for the, and asked for the body of our Lord. But they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. This is an odd statement. The proceedings or the the sufferings of Christ, proceeding from the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, Acts 2, verse 23, and were permitted by him, it pleased him, moreover, that his son's self-sacrifice would witness the joy of man's redemption and his ultimate deliverance from sin. Yes, he put him to grief. Rather, he dealt grievously, and he was bruised with a grievous bruising. But it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put off him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, as a result of all of this that's gone forward in in the last 11 verses, therefore, based on this, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul in death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for transgressors. And so we look at the life of Christ in this short verse, or this short set of verses in verse 53, in chapter 53, and we look at the astounding predictive prophecy that Isaiah makes concerning our Lord concerning the sacrifice that he makes, that he's made for us, and that he acts now as our intercessor. He He acts now as our Savior. And so what we've seen is from verses or from chapters 41 to 48, uh, they have covered the recovery of the people of God from their sin, from the bondage of Babylon, Cyrus being the mechanism of that recovery. And then from chapters 49 to 53, the mission of the great deliverer, the servant of Jehovah. And so, beginning in chapters 54 through 56, more promises are made. And we'll stop there today. I'll I'll end the class just a little bit early today. Next week, we'll begin at chapter 54, and we'll rush through uh, to the end in chapter 66. All of these things being covered, promises of Israel, warnings to the wicked, woes to those who uh, make... uh, make uh, problems or make trouble for the glories that will be the restored Jerusalem. All of these things we'll touch on next week, uh, good Lord willing.